Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario officials have announced expanded testing options for students as well as testing blitzes for holiday shoppers. Now, that's on top of today's approval of Pfizer's pediatric vaccine. Makes for a pretty big news day, doesn't it? How will all of these announcements impact the next few months of the pandemic? Well, we'll talk about that. The long-anticipated Three Amigos Summit took place yesterday, and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau says it was extremely effective. Mm, Really? What were the main concerns discussed? And after a unanimous vote among Halton District School Board trustees, Ryerson Public School in Burlington has been renamed. We'll tell you the new name and the significance of it. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. More news about what's happening with uh, vaccinations now, uh, that uh, considering inoculation of children for Pfizer vaccine right now is uh, forthcoming. But it also appears that testing is going to be a major COVID-19 strategy heading into the holidays. The province talked about that the other day. Ontario officials have announced expanded testing options for students, as well as testing blitzes for holiday shoppers. Global's Dave Woodard has some details. Before your son or daughter leaves for winter break, they'll be given five rapid antigen tests to take home. Between late November and mid-December, we'll be distributing 11 million rapid antigen screening tests to all publicly funded schools. Education Minister Stephen Lecce made the announcement alongside the Chief Medical Officer of Health and Health Minister Christine Elliott. She says the province is also going to launch pop-up testing blitzes in higher traffic places like malls and other public spaces. To provide testing to individuals without symptoms as well as provide vaccine education. In addition, the province also says testing will be available for people showing COVID-19 symptoms in up to 1,300 pharmacies across the province as we brace for a potential increase in cases over the winter. Dave Woodard, Global News. So I want to talk about the testing. I want to talk about the uh, the children's vaccine, too. And to ju- do that, we were pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Chris Botch. Uh, Dr. Botch, research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. I'll get into the, uh, the the vaccine for kids in just a couple of seconds, but let's talk about the uh, the testing that uh, that Minister Lecce talked about the other day. I think there's been an ongoing concern probably both the last 19 months now about the lack of testing. We always were told that it was a key part of this, and we know that there were probably warehouses full of vaccine kits that were sitting around not being used. Uh, it sounds as if they've, they finally got the message and we're going to accelerate that program. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I think this is this is a great idea. Potentially, it's a game changer if enough people will take advantage of it. Uh, and yeah, I think it's happening now, uh, partly because you said it takes time for the message to get through, but also they're becoming cheaper. Um, the prices keep dropping for these testing kits, and the strategy they've they've put forward it seems it's very targeted. Uh, it's it's identified the high risk situation, uh, which for example is is unvaccinated children. Um, you know, traveling over the holidays um, and potentially spreading it. So that's why they're giving those, those, those kids to test to take home. So this is a, a great strategy, and I'm hopeful that, you know, if, if the strategy is implemented, if enough people do it, and if we can start vaccinating the under 12s, you know, then, we, you know, then there's, we have a very good shot at avoiding a lockdown, which nobody wants to go into again. Well, especially because, as you say, you know, the, 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 the children in schools are, are a concern here. And we've heard about isolated outbreaks in a number of schools right now. And, and you know, you're right. I mean, you know, over the Christmas break, uh, they won't be able to test them every day because they're not going to be at school. So I guess instead of saying, OK, you guys come to us here, take this stuff home uh, to make sure. Because is, is it a given right now, Chris, that, that there is going to be a spike over the Christmas holidays? So there certainly has been over the last couple of uh, outbreaks of this. And, you know, we're heading into the colder weather right now. And as you say, we're going to be traveling, too. Yeah, 
So the way things are going at the moment, it, it looks like the cases will continue to rise. Um, it's the colder weather. Uh, I think maybe we're also seeing the effect of uh, some of the expanded reopening. So now that people can go into uh, movie theaters, for example, um, that might have also kind of uh, put us past the tipping point a bit. Um, and, you know, potentially we're seeing a little bit of waning effect in the vaccine because a lot of people got vaccinated over the summer months. And we know that it starts to wane after around six months or so. So that could also be contributing as well, which, which kind of suggests that a booster shot is, is a good idea. Um, so it, it's, um, it's not a given that there's going to be a spike because, on the other hand, we are going to start vaccinating the kids and we are expanding the testing. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's hard to say at this point. Um, you know, a lot of countries in Europe have ha- had surges. You know, as, as many of your listeners know, Austria is now has to go into another lockdown. Um, uh, but, you know, Canada has, the, you know, the benefit of, of being a few months behind whatever happens in Europe, and we have more time to uh, get the intercrawls vaccinated, uh, get the booster shots, and um, get more testing up and running. So we may actually avoid a, a, a really bad wave, I'm, I'm hopeful, um, but, uh, it, um, but, but I'm, I'm not really sure um, if, it's, if, if uh, uh, either way which, you know, which scenario is going to play out here. Well, the vaccinations, I guess, uh, to your point, are going to be a key element of this. We earlier this week we're talking with uh, uh, one of our guests uh, from Wax well, from Bloomberg Intelligence. He's over in London, England, right now, and, and he kind of startled us with his revelation. He said I had COVID last week, but he's double vaccinated, and he says I felt like crap for about four or five days, but I didn't have to go to the hospital. Uh, and he says I'm over it now. Yeah, everything seems to be better. He's still got some problems with taste, and and that may well be the case that you know the people are still going to get this, I guess, but uh, it's it's going to be a uh, a much less severe situation if, in fact, they are positive. That's right, yes. Yeah. So even if, uh, you know, uh, uh, so the vaccine is, is really strongly protective against you know, hospitalization and death. You can still get, you can still get it, but it, uh, um, in general, for most people, it will be less severe. So, it's, um, so you're definitely better off with two doses, even if the immunity starts to wane a bit over time. Uh, by orders of magnitude, you're, you're, you're safer. But of course, there are always you know, some exceptions. You know, the vaccine is not 100% effective, so a few people who get the vaccine will still get it. Uh, but it's still your best shot at, at avoiding getting sick and, and being hospitalized. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's not a silver bullet. Let's talk about the children's vaccine then. Uh, the announcement, of course, from Health Canada, the feds, I guess, are going to make it official. Uh, our provincial minister, Christian Elliott, was talking about this yesterday too and says it may take them a, a couple of days to get this rollout going. How important are the children's vaccines, uh, given the fact that there still seems to be some controversy about whether this is a, 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 a virus that's going to have a negative impact on kids? I, think, I, I like to think that we understand that it does now, but there are still some deniers out there about that. Uh, but vaccination rates among kids are going to be a key element, I would think, in this. I think it's hugely important. And I, I think the role of children in transmission is underappreciated because they're often asymptomatic. Uh, and many of the tests intended to, pr- to predict previous exposure underpredict the amount of exposure that, that kids have experienced. Um, so because they can be asymptomatic, those, a lot of these outbreaks are actually silent outbreaks. I think a lot of the cases we see... Uh, probably spread in schools, but they're not traced back to schools because the kids just had a runny nose or something. They didn't have the typical symptoms, but their parents then got the cough. Um, and uh, so it was classified as a household case. So, and the timing is really crucial here because, of course, remember, it takes a few weeks for the vaccine to take effect. 
and you're not fully protected until you've got your doses. So we're heading into the Christmas holidays uh, when you know the, the kids will be coming home, going to see their grandparents, traveling around the province, uh, and you know because we need two or three weeks of vaccine to take effect, it's really imperative to get as many kids as vaccinated as soon as we can, but you know before the holidays. Well, let's let's talk about that and the protocol that's going to be developed. And, and we heard that yesterday uh, from the Ontario Health Minister that uh, and that and Dr. Moore was on our program too, uh, the medical officer of health, and saying it's going to be eight weeks, just like it is for adults, between first and second doses for the kids' vaccine. Uh, in some places in the states where they've already started the vaccination program, as you know, uh, it's it's much shorter than that. I think it's only three weeks in, in some states that they're actually doing this. Uh, what, what what are your thoughts on this? Are we have we got it right this time, or should we be accelerating that? Well, uh, you know, I think um, so. Uh, you you can't do much shorter than six weeks. Uh, so uh, let's suppose we get one dose. If we can get most of the age group vaccinated by, by one dose uh, before the holidays, uh, we would have to wait until uh, um, you know. I guess that would be February anyway. So in terms of a possible Christmas related surge. You know, six or eight weeks doesn't matter. Uh, in terms of downstream, I would actually tend to favor six-week interval. Um, uh, but you know, it, it's uh, you know, you can you can defend either approach. Uh, and, and the main thing is is it's the first dose because that gives you most of the protection. The, the really critical issues is is you know getting that administered as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think all things being equal, I, I think a six-week um, interval is is better. Uh, but the benefits of six versus eight weeks wouldn't be felt anyway in, in, until, you know, late winter. I, I'm just thinking back to the adult vaccines, and I, I know that, you know, the government got all sorts of flack, you know, last, well, earlier this year, I guess it was now, saying, no, you know, it's, it's only eight weeks because we don't have enough vaccine. These guys messed everything up. And now we find out, lo and behold, it's more effective if you wait eight weeks. You know, that, that first dose has that much more of an impact on you, uh, which is something I guess we learned as we went along like that. So, Maybe the six to eight weeks is a better protocol for kids. I, I know, as you mentioned, Chris, it misses that target of trying to have them double vaccinated by Christmas, but that's just not going to happen. I mean, you know, the, the, yeah. the logistics aren't there for that, are they? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's that was, uh, yeah, it's not possible at this point. Yeah. So, you know, one is better than none, and and you know they'll get the second one, I guess, early in this in the the new year, which is, I guess, beneficial. The other element to this too, and I know we're having a discussion about this in Hamilton and in London. Uh, about getting to the communities. I mean, there are some areas of, of each community right across the province that still have low vaccination rates among adults and for a variety of reasons. I know there could be language barriers. There could be some hesitancy. We're not sure exactly what's going on there. Uh, some of them economically challenged just don't get out of their neighborhoods very often. Uh, and and you got to wonder if, if the, the adults didn't get vaccinated for whatever reason, the kids may or may not, probably won't get vaccinated for those very same reasons. How do you reach out to people like that in neighborhoods like that to try to to to, to bring the vaccine to them? It, yeah, it's a hard problem because there's many reasons not to vaccinate, as as there are people essentially. I mean, there are some very reluctant people who, um, you know, who are dead against vaccination. Others are simply hesitant. Others don't have the access to the means, as you say. So I think um, a couple of things have to happen. You know, trust is very important. So, um, you know, they have to trust their healthcare providers uh, and and the public health nurses. And you know, part of that is is built on relationships. So, for example, my brother's who the pediatrician says, you know, I get the vaccine for my kids. Uh, you know, and and when people hear that, they think, well, okay, I don't I don't think he's a bad father, so maybe it's okay for me to get it for my kids. So that relationship, those relationships are important. Um, 
but but also if, if they don't have access to health care, then you need to um, you know, implement special initiatives. And that's why making it accessible to the pharmacies is such a good idea, um, because at least for, for testing, uh, uh, expanded testing with pharmacies, that's a way of reaching those groups. Um, uh, but but uh, I think a lot of the hesitancy is, uh, in terms of addressing the hesitancy aspect, it's important to build trust and provide information. And even if you, you can't reach the, you know, the people who are dead set against vaccination, most vaccine-hesitant individuals are like that, and they just want more information. They want to talk to someone who, um, you know, they can trust. Uh, and, you know, those people you can reach, um, it's a question of, of uh, uh, trust and communication, and that, that would help considerably. Uh, and, you know, you know, some people might be more or less willing to vaccinate their kids if they don't want it themselves. It really depends. Uh, you know, I know one business owner who... Um, he doesn't believe in masks, but the, the regulations say, well, you have to use masks, and so he's very adamant about it, <laughs> even though he personally doesn't believe in it. So because there's such a diversity of motivations, there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but there are some things that help for many people, like building trust and, and, and good, good communication. But that's one of the other elements uh, that uh, the Dr. Moore talked to us about earlier this week, Chris, when he was on the show, uh, is to be diligent about those other protocols. I mean, you know, as as you and other experts have told us, uh, vaccination is still the number one tool that we've got here to try to battle this pandemic. Uh, but the masking and the social distancing and the and the hand hygiene still uh, is is going to be very very important. And you know, the, the concern I, I've heard from a lot of the experts now is, well, we're getting a little lax there, and and that could be problematic. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, we, 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 um, so the way these innovations operate is there, it's kind of like you have multiple sieves, right? Uh, and each each one is imperfect on its own, but when you kind of stack them together, you can contain the pandemic. Uh, and so, um, if if we're getting lax with the masks use, that's an issue. Um, so, you know, the the best hope for avoiding our lockdown is is you know vaccinating in our twelves, trying to reach reach. The vaccine hasn't individuals, especially in those um, uh, lower income communities where there's less access and um, uh, and then being diligent with, with masks and trying to limit social gatherings uh, as well. Um, and if we do these kind of this combined approach, we have a very good shot at, at containing it. But, you know, if you start to take off one layer, one sieve, then some of the wires can get through. So if we throw away masks, we have good testing and vaccines, then that's a problem. Um, uh, but a series of imperfect interventions combined that can work, and so that's you know that's part our best shot. Interesting poll. I got about sixty seconds left here uh, from Leger and Post Media, uh, and this was a national poll, but I found it fascinating. Sixty-four uh, percent of the people that were polled were supportive of vaccine passports for kids. In other words, proof of vaccination uh, to go to restaurants or even to get back into school. Now, I don't think that's going to happen uh, because of, there's there's a mandate with the education system to make sure the kids are educated. Uh, but I think it, what it does is underscores, I think, the fact that people are starting to understand how important vaccines, especially uh, for kids, are going to be in this process. I agree. And it's like, to me, it's like, uh, you know, taxation. I got to pay my taxes even if I don't like it, you know, because it benefits everyone and we, we can't make exceptions. And, you know, these vaccines are safe and effective and, and there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, um, expect them. Um, and so I, that's why I support the vaccine passports uh, as well. Well, we'll uh, see what happens in the days ahead as the province starts to roll this program out. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Okay, yeah, thanks. You too, Bill. Bye-bye.
Take care. Dr. Chris Bach from uh, University of Waterloo uh, with the children's vaccines uh, rolling out. And, uh, well, they'll be in touch, I'm pretty sure. Good news, though, as he mentioned, uh, that we heard on the program yesterday uh, from, uh, well, Justin Bates from the Ontario Association of Pharmacists, uh, that they're going to be partaking in this program too. Uh, but check with your local pharmacy to make sure the vaccine is going to be available. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister spent the last couple of days in Washington, D.C., as we know, for uh, the revival of the Three Amigos. That's the uh, President of Mexico, President of the United States, and of course, our Prime Minister. And uh, it was a, a, quite a full agenda that the Prime Minister had on his hands, none the least of which, of course, is uh, the Buy America plan for recovery that's happening down there. And uh, the Prime Minister says that he raised the topic of this controversial tax credit for American-made electric vehicles uh, with the Biden administration several times while visiting through for the Three Amigos conference. Uh, says that he told the U.S. President uh, the impact the proposed policy would have on Canadian automakers. I highlighted over the course of these past two days in many, many different conversations, Canada's real concerns uh, about the impact it would have not just on the industry in Canada, but on uh, the integrated uh, industry and workers on both sides of the border. And we're going to continue to do the work necessary to not just highlight our position, but find solutions. Well, uh, were there any solutions? Uh, joining us to talk about what could have and should have happened or maybe didn't happen down there and a, and a bunch of other things happening in federal politics. It's our uh, weekly check-in with uh, Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star uh, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for, for many, many years. Uh, Badger, uh, thanks for joining us. A busy week this week uh, with the Prime Minister being down in, the, in Washington. Uh, your read on what you heard and what you saw over the last couple of days. Well, it wasn't good, Bill. Uh, it, You know... The fact that he, the president didn't really say anything, he didn't commit himself to anything that we, we certainly heard. And they went down there knowing full well what his what the president's agenda is. And he's made that perfectly clear. And that is to, you know, give uh, Americans more jobs and to give, uh, you know, give a, a, a rebate to anybody buy anybody buying an electric car if it is made in the United States and, and union made. And naturally Canada is saying, whoa, just a minute now. That 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 violates our trade agreement. But when it comes to our trade agreement, the US seems to pick and choose whenever it likes. And and that must be that's certainly frustrating. I I don't think the uh you know, the Canadian delegates came back with any kind of guarantee whatsoever. Well, and, and Biden was pretty clear about that, didn't he? He just said, well, it hasn't even passed legislation yet, so I, we can't even comment. Of course he can. He can he, 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 he's, he's in a political fight for not just his life, but the life of the Democratic Party right now. And I, we have to understand that that's the backdrop. And you and I talked about this last week, I guess. Uh, you know, they, they had some elections down there. Uh, Democrats got... Well, they, they barely won New Jersey again, didn't win West Virginia. Uh, the midterm elections, which, you know, a good deal of the Congress and the Senate are going to be up for election next year. Uh, they're trailing in, in, in just about every poll that you see these days. He's got to, to curry favor with some people, especially the blue collar workers. If he wants to hold on, he's going to stay there for the next you know, three and a half years. But that's not a problem. But if you don't control the House and the Senate, uh, you're not going to get anything done. So he's he's really... Uh, looking ahead to those midterm elections when he looks at legislation like this. And we saw that, didn't we, on Monday, Badger? I mean, he, you know, he made a big to-do 
on the south lawn of the White House for this signing of this this bill that we just talked about here and saying this is going to be their roadmap to the future. There's no way he's going to walk back on that promise two days later. Not a chance. You know, he, like you said, he's in, he's in, you know, he's in political trouble. He, even though he's, you know, just even hardly into his mandate, he's in political trouble, and he has to he has to do something that will generate a, a excitement and and be interest in what what he's trying to do. I mean, the the guy is the president of the United States is trying. He's trying to. To build up confidence in the country, he's trying to, you know, uh, create jobs. He's trying to do a, uh, a ton of things. And whether he steps on Canadians' toes, that doesn't matter really to him. Sure matters to us. And I think the whole thing is going to generate, uh, you know, another movement towards by Canadian, where we where we simply do very similar things to what he's doing. You know, if you buy a, a you know electric car made in Canada, you you get a rebate. You you can you can hear the discussion starting already. Yeah, except Doug Falk doesn't want to do that. I mean, he's he's again said no way. He he canceled that program when he got elected, and, and says he's not going to bring it back. Well, he says a lot of things. <laughs> and, there is and, that, and whether you know whether he has to backtrack on that, it re- remains to be seen. But this will cause no end of grief you got everybody out there i'm not telling you know folks listeners that something they don't know we are so integrated with you know with with the united states and mexico in terms of trade and anything that comes along to throw a monkey wrench into that is is serious and this this is a big monkey wrench if he if he does that and i'm i'm sure he you know the U.S. will eventually agree to this uh, a rebate agreement. It's 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 not good for for our economy by economy by any stretch of the imagination. Well, there's a couple of things at play here that that I find intriguing, and I don't know what goes on in the discussions behind closed doors. You know, well, all we saw were the photo ops. But this Buy America thing is not new. You know, this has been going on for the longest time. As a matter of fact, it predates Trump. I mean. Uh, as, as we talked about, when the United States was trying to pull out of the 2009-2010 recession under Obama, they talked about Buy America, and that was part of the legislation then. And and Joe Biden was in charge of that program. He was the vice president, and Obama said, "You, Joe, you run with this and make this thing work. And this was one of the sticking points then, if you remember, Badger. They said, you know, buy American cars. And and then finally, we, we were able to negotiate and said, wait a second, every car that you consider to be made in America has gone back and forth across the border four or five times for different parts and different parts of the of the, 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 the what we call the integrated supply chain. So they said, all right, yeah, you're right. Uh, the auto sector is a, a, a bit of a pass. Okay, we're going to do that. Why aren't they just giving us the same slack right now? Because the, the, the same thing exists. It's a very integrated supply chain. Well, Cars are going is, back and forth all the time. Therein lies the rub. It, I mean, you don't have any vehicle in the United States or in Canada that is made in the, you know, the respective countries. They're made parts from all over the world. And to suggest that these cars, these you know, new electric cars that they hope to build in the United States are American-made is just a, it's a joke. Well, but, in the, the, as they found out with steel when, when Trump tried to impose tariffs, 
the steel industry themselves say, we can't do this. There are some things that we get from the Canadian side, like aluminum and other stuff, that we simply can't do. It would take us 10 or 15 years to ramp up to be able to, to meet the demand in the United States. We're, it's much more economical for us to continue this relationship. These guys in Washington aren't stupid. I mean, what they're doing is playing to the crowd and saying, look at what we're going to do. We're going to create American jobs. It's a, they're already there. The, the, you know, this is already in place. And, 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 yeah, the, and therein lies, you know, there's no need to pull the uh, fire alarm here for those very reasons you raised. I mean, it is a, whenever something threatens our trade, it's serious. But we're going to go through this again. We're going to go through many of the same points that were raised before. And the steel industry is going to say the same thing. And... You know, and people are going to raise the fact that cars, you know, parts and that come from all over the place. He is he's playing to the crowd right now. Whether it comes, you know, it comes out the way he wants it to remains to be seen. I, I don't, you know, and let's get back to the trade agreement. This to do this would violate our trade agreement. So that would set in place a whole number of things. None the least of which, of course, is there's going to be arguments about this. There's going to have to be some negotiations about this. Uh, and, and, and this was against the Trump administration, and they were still able to cut a deal. And Biden was already on record, by the way, as saying he supports the, that, that revised NAFTA. So you're right. There's got some explaining to do as it goes. The other thing, I guess, it comes down to is if this is really going to get uh, technical, if it's going to get you know, more antagonistic, can Canada play hardball? I mean, because we do have something that they want, and I'm talking, uh, they they want to be able to make the batteries for these cars. They don't have the raw materials for it. We do up in northern Ontario. Uh, do we come back and say, all right, if, if you're not going to give in on the auto pack stuff, you're not getting this stuff. You can continue to deal with China, and good luck with that. And we've done that before, uh, yeah. you know, just recently when, when Trump was in power and imposed all kinds of tariffs on, on things. Uh, yeah, we can, but that's you know that's just a short. You don't want to you don't want to go to that extreme. No, but, that's a that's know. a stopgap thing. I mean, yeah, it's funny how Canadians always think, and not Canadians in general, particular politicians think that things are going to be so, you know, roses if the Democrats got in and trade will be you know flourish and all this. And I I don't know why they always think that way because it never works out that way. They, you know. The Democrats are very much like the you know Republicans. They've got to get reelected, and so they'll they'll bring in policies that they think will do that. Protectionism is, is, is and you're absolutely right. And I know most economists actually talked about that. There are a lot of reasons uh, why Trump had to go, and we're glad that he's gone. Uh, but a better trade policy is not necessarily one of them because it's they they still play hardball down there when it comes to what they want out of of, of trade deals like this and. And as you say, every time there's a trade dispute, they tend to ignore the, the, the result of it because usually it's ruled against the United States. So I don't know where this one's going. Uh, way, I'd like Trump's to think not that gone. he's just lurking in the shadows. Well, exactly. Yeah, he's, yeah you're not going anywhere there. <laughs> and he, he's and we just talked about the midterms. He's very much an influence in what's going to be happening there too. Uh, very quickly, I got a couple of minutes yeah. left here. Uh, our federal MPs go back to work. I'll use that term loosely. Uh, on Monday, of course, our Parliament is back. There'll be a speech from the throne where they're supposed to outline exactly what uh, they're planning on doing. Uh, we talked to Jagmeet Singh in the program yesterday, of course, the leader of the NDP. He says there is no coalition. There won't be any coalition. But on the other hand, uh, for this government to survive, they're going to have to play ball with the NDP, aren't they? 
Oh, absolutely they will. You can call it what you like. It, it is not a coalition. He's right. A coalition is when, you know, you literally work hand in hand, and, and oftentimes if a coalition exists, it's NDP members will be part of the cabinet. No, so it's it's not a coalition, but it, 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 they're going to be in bed together. There's no question about it. They have to. The liberals cannot extend their mandate for any time at all if the uh, if the NDP doesn't support them, and the NDP is in a spot too that they have to, they have to support the the liberal policies because they're much like the NDP policies. Yeah. So you, they really, they really have to work hand in hand, and you know, and they, they by doing so, I mean they'll be, you know, the conservatives say you're just in bed with the liberals, and how how can you live with yourself and all that stuff and that. But it'll happen, They'll, and, you know, we'll see how far this minority government goes, but it'll certainly last a lot longer with uh, NDP support. Well, and we've seen this with minority governments in the past, haven't we? As I mentioned to Mr. Singh yesterday, oftentimes, you're right, they, they're singing from the same song sheet, the Liberals and the NDP, on a lot of issues. You know, pharmacare, uh, benefits and child care, certainly the National Child Care Program. Uh, but sometimes in a minority government, it's the NDP that pushed the Liberals to actually get it done. Uh, instead of just talking the talk. So who knows how this is going to work out. Uh, what about Aaron O'Toole? Uh, he's he's under attack from his own party. A uh, lot of uh, consternation about what's happening there. Uh, does that go away when they get back to work and they can start focusing on the liberals instead of each other? I think Aaron O'Toole brought a knife to a gunfight. He just, uh, I, I, can't, I can't see him lasting. Uh, do I think he should? Yes. But there is there is so there are so many people out there, so many members of his own party, they're trying to undermine him, and I I, I think he's he's just treading water at the moment, because I really believe that despite whatever he does, and put you know and push back, that it's it's not gonna it's not gonna work that he his days are numbered. Well, it all starts on Monday in earnest and uh, with the throne speech, and we'll certainly be following that. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again in you a few too, days, Bill, I'm sure. You. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, who's covered Queen's Park and, uh, and Parliament Hill for so many years, of course, for the uh, Toronto Star newspaper chain. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The debate about uh, name changing, especially for folks that, uh, well, were on the wrong side of the residential school problem. I don't think there was any right side to it, frankly. But uh, obviously, Andrew Ryerson was one of them, and Ryerson University has already dropped their name, and they're in the process of right now of uh, having a competition, I guess it is, to select a new name. Uh, there's a Ryerson school in Hamilton uh, that is looking for a new name, and uh, one in Burlington that have actually decided last night, as it was at a school board meeting, uh, for a new name for that school. Now, Evan Rashan is a grade six student at the school, uh, is supportive of the new name that was last uh, introduced uh, at the program at the meeting last night, and uh, says, well, the new name is actually much more meaningful than a lot of the other suggestions they had. McClendon is a unique name, not like Creekside and Parkside. Many schools have creeks close by, and there's even a street named Parkside in Burlington, but it's not even in our neighborhood. These other names just aren't exciting or do anything to make our school stand out. So the, the new name, as it uh, turns out, is uh, Makokadam. Uh, it is uh, apparently a word that means to remember. And uh, joining us to talk about the decision, first of all, by the Burlington uh, Board of Education and uh, maybe some of the examples of what's going to be happening in some of these other institutions, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Don Laval-Harvard, who is the president 
of the Ontario Native Women's Association, also the director at the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome. But I'm actually former president now. We oh, I'm sorry. President. Okay. That's okay. Well, it's a good well, thing. It still, still looks good on the CV, Don. So. Exactly. <laughs> uh, your, your reaction to the, uh, the announcement yesterday from Burlington Board of Education. Well, I think this is really important. This shows some real leadership from the students, from the parents, from the school board, who are recognizing that, yes, it's, it is only symbolic, but that symbols matter, that this you know, renaming of the school and no longer participating in the glorification of somebody who supported residential schools, and not just making it an Indigenous name, but an Indigenous name that actually honors those children who didn't survive the schools. And so I think, you know, the notion of, of to remember has some really deep significance. And you know, I'm, I'm really proud of those students and the parents who are supporting this and pushing for this in their school. I don't mean to be trite about this, but it checks two boxes, doesn't it? First of all, as you say, it gets rid of the name Ryerson. Uh, but this is, in, in fact, it becomes a memorial to, to the, the memory of those children that had to go through this and, and some of them who are still suffering the results of that. Well, that's exactly it, right? So that every time, you know, we're hoping that it doesn't become just like an empty land acknowledgement where people stand up and, you know, read this off by road off some paragraph, that this name, that, you know, future generations of children as they enter the school and say, well, what does that mean? There's going to be a moment of learning there. And every time we can have a moment of learning, that's going to shed some truth, some, some light on that history is a positive step forward for those future generations of children. And, and this is one of the key things, and I know you've talked about that in previous uh, visits to our program, uh, the education portion of this, which has always been missing. Uh, you know, we got one side of the story uh, for, for generations upon generations uh, in our education system about what happened with residential schools and, and how Indigenous peoples were treated by various governments over the years. Uh, this this is, uh, I think, a classic opportunity for the Halton District Board to, to grasp this as a learning moment, too. Well, and it's, it's interesting because we have literally just come through Remembrance Day, and this really addresses an important aspect of society, of humanity, you know, this notion of the importance of remembering, the importance of bearing witness. And as a society, unfortunately, towards Indigenous people in this country, for generations, there's been an attitude of the residential schools happened a long time ago. Why don't you people just get over it? You know, the treaties were a long time ago. Why don't you people just get over it? And when you look at it in, in a larger context, if having just come through Remembrance Day and acknowledging, you know, those veterans standing there in Ottawa, standing at cenotaphs across the country, remembering, you know, the sacrifices, remembering the horrors of the war, no one would ever consider looking at one of them and suggesting that they should be able to just get over that, that, you know, we recognize that that creates a lifelong trauma, but also the importance of everybody in society remembering what happened not just in honoring those who had happened to and who were participating in the war and those who were victims of the residential schools, but the importance of remembering what happened so that we can change how we do things moving forward. We can understand the attitudes that not just allowed this to happen to Indigenous children, but in fact encouraged it and thought that they were doing a good thing by destroying what makes us a people. I'm glad you brought up Remembrance Day because just as we were even watching the ceremonies, uh, from Ottawa specifically, uh, there, there was the story, and I'm sure you saw this one, uh, about the, uh, an Aboriginal and Indigenous uh, representative who's in the armed forces uh, laying a wreath at the, at the cenotaph. And they said this was the first time that that group was allowed to do that. 
in all of these years. They contributed. Many of them lost their lives in, you know, in, in defense of their country, notwithstanding the way that they were being treated back home. Uh, yet we are so slow to respond and to react and to acknowledge uh, the contributions and, and, and the, the, the special place, I guess, that Indigenous peoples play in this country and in this country's history. It's, it's just underscored, I think, actually, that we got a lot of work to do here. Well, and I think this is the thing, for people to really hear that story of those Indigenous veterans, if people really understood the true significance of that, knowing that at the time that many of these young men signed up, because they were not considered persons under the law of Canada, they weren't considered Canadian citizens, they actually didn't have to sign up. And in fact, many of them, by signing up, they lost their Indian status. So they lost their right to ever return back to their communities by signing up, but because they knew it was an important thing to do because they were warriors at heart and wanted to stand up for justice around the world. They stepped forward and volunteered per capita, actually in greater numbers than non-Indigenous people at the time. And so, you know, to understand that they did that because it was the right thing to do out of their heart, not because they had to, because they weren't forced into it, you know, really shows the significance and, and the importance of honoring the bravery of those soldiers who did step forward. Doctor, how do we integrate these stories and that history uh, into curricula so that so that this, these children and future generations have a much more rounded uh, picture of, of exactly what went on and, and what is going on? Well, and I think that's exactly it. You know, we need to stop having Native Studies classes or a Native Studies unit or an Indigenous Studies unit in social studies. Now people, of course, say, it's like, what? We can't stop having it. No, what I'm saying is we need to stop making it a distinct unit. I think it's absurd that we have an Indigenous history class and a regular history class, you know, because by having it separated that way, it implies that there is history and then there's Indigenous history and that they're somehow distinctly different, and they're not. I mean, we need to have that Indigenous history, those Indigenous stories, that, you know, Indigenous side of every conversation through every history class, every social studies class, every English class, you know, to really integrate it and starting right at the kindergarten level. And, and again, I know there's people that talk about, well, the concerns, is residential school history really something that we could be sharing with, you know, kindergarten or grade one? Shouldn't we wait till they're older and mature enough to have, understand? And again, I point to Remembrance Day. I mean, the horrors of the world wars are, are unquestionable atrocities. But we have children in junior kindergarten classes, in daycares, coloring copies and talking about Flanders Field and remembering at an age-appropriate way and so we know we can do this. It's important to us. And I think that's what schools like this renaming, you know, with this Makwandam to, to, to remember, that's that first step. And now the work, you know, we need to roll up our sleeves and sit down and, you know, start filling in those gaps, start telling those stories in every class. We've talked in the past about outrage that has, has, has risen up, you know, when we hear some of these stories. Uh, and, but it fades away. Uh, you know, there's there's a hue and cry. Yeah, we need to do something. We you know, and and which of course was where the Truth and Reconciliation Committee came from. Uh, with the Senator, of course, Murray Sinclair's great work with his committee. Uh, but it got shoved in a bottom door someplace. Uh, with the discovery of the uh, the unmarked graves, it seems to have, have rekindled that that anger. I think that a lot of us were feeling. It looks like it's going to hang around this time, and it looks like it's having an impact. I mean, there's always going to be uh, places where we fall back. I mean, you know, we're talking about renaming of, of institutions with Ryerson, uh, Dundas Street to be renamed in Toronto. And I understand there's a movement afoot there by some historical groups to say, uh, well, let's find another guy named Dundas so we can name it after so we don't have to change the signs. I think they're kind of missing the point, aren't they? <laughs> I'm, that, I'm not making this up. 
No, I mean it's it's absurd, but but strangely, I I can see. Oh gosh. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's it, it is absurd, and you just think you you people are, have you not been paying attention? Yeah, that this is not what it's about. It's not about the the name Dundas. It's about what Dundas stood for. It's about what various incarnations and people with different names that had those same attitudes, what they stood for. And and I really hope you're right. And I think you are right. I think the finding of those unmarked graves has really changed something, I think, for a lot of people in Canadian society who there is no more ability to pretend that we don't know, you know, to be able to turn a blind eye to say that, you know, my parents went to a boarding school in England, you know, other, it's not the same thing. And I think the finding of these unmarked graves has finally opened some people's eyes in a way that they can't unknow it. And I think if we have leadership, like at that school board level, make this part of their strategic plans, make sure that it's integrated so that we don't slide back and, you know, slip back to a place where we rationalize this away with comments about, well, people thought they were doing the right thing. You know, we can't judge history from the contemporary perspective. We can. We can look at that and say, regardless of the rationalizations, it was not the right thing. We cannot honor those people anymore. You know, in the same way that we, we look at Hitler and say that, you know, there's absolutely no way that we can honor certain people given what they did, and we can't hold them up. So we need to have a solid plan, leadership from our school boards, from our parents, from everybody, for how we're going to make these changes moving forward to tell the truth, to tell that real history. And once we have that truth out there, it really changes the dynamic. It changes the conversation. And it, you know, I work with students at Trent University, and we have a lot of international students who say that, you know, this was very well hidden. People from other countries, you know, don't have any idea of what happened here. And I said, in fact, most people here had no idea what happened here until they start seeing these unmarked graves. And so because it was so well hidden, now that it has been exposed, I really hope that we have turned a point that we will never go back to a place where we can pretend we didn't know, where we can rationalize and and where we can turn a blind eye and, and have ignorance towards what happened. Well, we hopefully are going to be moving forward on this. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending some time with us again today. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. Dr. Don Laval, Harvard, with the renaming of Ryerson School in Burlington. Nicely done. And uh, by the way, the city of Burlington uh, looking to rename uh, Ryerson Park, too. So we'll follow those stories. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.